Good morning, church. You know, sometimes I uh, find myself reflecting on God's grace, and it's, it's overwhelming to me. There's a passage in Romans where it talks about standing in God's grace. I always imagine myself waist deep in the, in the grace of God. And sometimes I like to kind of look back and trace God's hand. Uh, you know, you can't always see what God's doing as it's happening, and you have to go back and say, wow, I did not know that's what God was up to and what he was doing. Uh, I think one of the, the great joys of heaven will be to see, oh, that's what God was at. That's why this happened. That's why I went through that circumstance. And uh, I, I did a sermon a number of years ago on the, the power of a single life. I may preach that before I leave here. It's, uh, it's just amazing to see how God's hand intertwines with our lives. Mark had been coming to our church for a few months. He was the son of my administrative assistant, Vicki. Uh, Mark's life had been a life of positive moves and really dumb moves. Uh, uh, at age 21, he attempted suicide. He uh, was an alcoholic. He kind of got his life together, became a successful businessman, met this wonderful gal. They got married. They had a beautiful little girl. And then he sunk back into the alcoholism, and she divorced him. So when he came to us, he was desperate. His life was a mess. And uh, I met with Mark several times. Uh, he knew that he needed God to control his life, and he was trying to work through that. And uh, then Vicky got cancer. His mom got cancer. And I thought, that's the last we'll see of Mark. And actually, the opposite happened. He started coming more faithfully and asking more questions and getting more involved. And then Vicki died. And um, the Sunday after her funeral, I met with Mark at church. And he seemed okay. Uh, we talked for a while. That week, while on the phone with his former wife, he kicked the chair out from under him and hung himself, and Mark was dead at age 37. And I tell that really sad story to remind us that we're all people familiar with disappointment, hurt, pain, sorrow. That's, that's a part of uh, our human experience. We all go through that. That person sitting beside you that looks like they have their act all together may not have their act altogether. I sometimes hear folks say, Pastor, as soon as I get my life fixed and get things worked out, then I'm going to start concentrating on God and getting that worked out. I just kind of want to shake them and use that famous Dr. Phil line, how's that working for you? You know, uh, you know how's that working, getting your life fixed and, and all worked out? You see, we don't have the capacity to fix ourselves. We don't have the capacity to fix anybody else either. And perhaps our sinful nature is most clearly evident as we attempt by our own power to fix our lives. The worst problem is uh, we've failed to understand this simple truth. And this is one of my life verses. It's found in Jeremiah 10. I know, Lord, that our lives are not our own. We're not able to plan our own course Another translation says, it's not for man alone to direct his steps. But we keep trying to do it, don't we? We keep trying to fix our problems. Uh, let me give you a quick quiz this morning. 
How many of you have ever hurt, been hurt by somebody? Anybody ever been hurt by somebody? Okay, yeah. Okay. How many of you have ever hurt yourself, either physically, spiritually, emotionally, you know? Yeah, okay. How many of you have ever hurt someone else? Welcome to the human race. If your life is perfect this morning, if you have no old hurts that need healing, no fears in your life that need to be overcome, no attempts to control others and no disappointments or regrets, then these next eight weeks are not going to be very helpful to you. They really won't. But if you're like the rest of us, they can be life-changing and eternity-changing. This is the reality of our condition. The Bible says that we've all sinned and come short of God's glory. We've all failed at some point. And try as we might, we do not have the capacity to put our lives back together again and to fix ourselves. I can't fix myself and I can't fix you, you know. Uh, If you're counting on that, you're in trouble. (laughs) I I don't have that kind of power. But believe me, with God's help, in the next eight weeks, we can start to see God putting our lives back together and reestablishing His purpose and His plan and His desire, not just for us, but for this church in an amazing way. I'm so excited about this afternoon. Uh, we're going to see God's grace in an amazing way, what he has done and what he is doing and what he plans to do in the life of this congregation. It's going to be exciting. There's a verse of scripture that kind of helps us understand how God fulfills his promise to us. It's found in Isaiah 57 in the today's English version. It says, I have seen how they acted, but I will heal them. I will lead them. I will comfort those who mourn. I will offer peace to all, both near and far. I will heal my people. These are the promises that God makes to us. They're big promises. If you hurt, I will heal you. If you're confused, I will lead you. If you feel helpless, I will help you. If you feel alone, I will comfort you. If you're anxious and afraid, I will give you my peace. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is preaching on a hillside to a group of, a large group of people, and he's the master teacher. He gives us eight principles for our lives that help us fulfill those promises that are made in Isaiah. He tells us uh, in these verses that we sometimes refer to as the Beatitudes, that God offers happiness and contentment for our lives. But here's the real uh, hang-up. We have to choose it. We have to choose his promises. And you might be tempted to say, well, who would not choose to be happy? I mean, who's that crazy? The reality is many of us live with painful lives simply because we don't want to change. You know, we're fearful of change. I've watched at times when people do things a certain way even though they know it's not going to work, you know. It's like, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result that, you know, it doesn't happen. You get the same thing every time. 
And uh, I, I find that confusing about ourselves, but, but we do that. In these eight verses, Jesus says, happiness can be ours, but the way to happiness doesn't always immediately make sense to us. You know, the path to happiness, as Jesus describes it, isn't the way that most of us think it should happen. And over these next eight weeks, we're going to find some choices that will change your life if you choose to allow him to change your life. So the very first step, this is the biggie, so if you have little notes, you can write this one down in case you did not know this. You have to realize, I am not God. Wow. I am not God. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you're going to say, Pastor, I know I'm not God. You know, I don't, I, don't, I, I don't have that kind of power. But the reality is, most of us at some point in our life have tried to play God. We've tried to do the things that God should be doing in our lives. We try to control how others perceive us. You know, it's kind of interesting, our staff, because of the increase in cases, we said, okay, when we're outside the sanctuary here, we're not worshiping. We're putting the mask back on. Not everybody was excited about that. But I was thinking about it. Uh, we all wear masks, don't we? Even when they're not physical masks. And sometimes our greatest fear is that someone will see the person behind the mask. They'll truly see us. And they'll truly know us. I remember she came into my office, beautiful girl. She was the one that on Sunday morning, she'd go around to everybody. She's smiling and talking to everybody. She's just, just that great kind of person, you know. Only this day she wasn't smiling. She was weeping. And over the next hour, she shared with me a, a sordid story of a secret affair, lying to her husband, horrible events that took place early in her life that led to the affair. And as she went through this whole confession, at the end she said, you probably don't like me very much now. I've heard a version of that many, many times. People tell me their story, and they said, now that you know me, you probably don't like me very much now. That's our fear, isn't it? If people really knew us, they might not like us. And that fear keeps us from addressing the reality of sin and brokenness and failure in our lives. Now, not only do we try to hide our true selves from other people, we try to control others. You ever notice that? We try, you know, parents try to control their children. Children try to control their parents. And sometimes they're pretty good at it. You know, they, they kind of figure you out and they know which one to talk to and which one to, will say yes and which one will say no. And uh, they've been known to say, mom said I could, so should, you know, they try to control their parents. Husbands try to control their wives. Wives try to control their, their husbands. And we have some pretty neat mechanisms to manipulate each other. You know, sometimes it's through guilt. Sometimes it's through praise. 
Sometimes it's through tears. And sometimes it's the, the real famous one, it's the silent treatment. You okay? I'm fine. You know, the, the silent treatment. What's wrong? Nothing. You know, that, that's, you kind of control people that way. Not only do we control people, or try to control people, we try to control our own problems, don't we? I don't need your help. I don't need a counselor. I don't need to go to recovery. I, I, can, I can handle this. I can do this. About a year after we uh, moved to Lexington, we, we still had our home in Florida. It wasn't selling, and so we had to rent a house. It finally sold, and so we're buying a house. And so we're going to move from Winchester, Kentucky to Lexington, Kentucky, where we've been renting in, in Winchester. And Brenda begged me, she said, Steve, call people and get some help. Hire somebody to do it. Well, I told her we didn't have the money to hire somebody to do it. And we had three boys. Well, they were 14, 13, and 11, but we had three boys and strong boys. So we can do this. You know, move furniture from upstairs, downstairs, onto a truck, to another house, upstairs, downstairs. 13 hours later, I'm laying on the living room floor, sure I was dying. And I knew Brenda was right, but I wasn't going to tell her that. I wasn't going to confess that. We believe that we can handle our problems. We try to control our pain. Addiction is rampant in this country, and it crosses every socioeconomic barrier. You know, we try to avoid pain, deny pain, escape pain, reduce pain. We do it by getting drunk, by taking drugs, by taking, quote, prescription drugs. Others seek to escape their pain by moving. If I move from New York to Florida, my problems won't follow me. Yeah, right. Uh, losing ourselves in exercise or sports or jumping in and out of relationships. We do all these things to try to control our pain. And there's some consequences and there's some results from trying to play God. We live in fear. What if somebody finds me out? There were two kids, uh, tw uh, the boy was 12, the girl was 10, and their parents sent them to their grandmother for the summer because she lived on a farm, and they loved going to grandma's farm. It was always so much fun. And Jimmy was a 12-year-old, and he and his sister were out, and they were throwing rocks. And Grandma's duck was walking across the yard, and he tossed a rock to scare it, hit the duck in the head, and killed it. And he was terrified. He ran to the barn, got a shovel, and they buried the duck. And so uh, that evening, that they had certain th uh, tasks that they had to do. They had to wash the dishes, set the table, and take out the garbage. And they took turns doing that. And on this particular evening, it was his sister's turn, but when it came time to wash dishes, she said, Jimmy's going to wash dishes. <laughs> and he looked at her, and she whispered, remember the duck. <laughs> this went on all summer. Every time it was her turn, remember the duck. Remember the duck. Finally, he had had it. So he went to his grandma, and he said, Grandma, couple days after we got here, I was thrown around. It was an accident. I didn't mean for it to happen. I killed your duck. 
She goes, I know I was watching out the window. I was wondering how long you would let your sister manipulate you and use you, you know. The result of fear in our lives paralyzes us, keeps us from doing what God wants us to do. I love something that Craig Grishaw says. He says, what I fear the most is the area where I trust God the least. Think about that for a moment. What I fear the most is the area where I'm trusting God the least in my life. Not only do we have fear as a consequence of playing God, we also have frustration. I love the words of Paul. He writes, it seems to be a fact of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. There's something else deep within me that is at war with my mind and wins the fight and makes me a slave to sin. I meet a lot of people who are frustrated in their lives. They're a slave to the brokenness of their lives. They're a slave to trying to fix their lives, and it's so frustrating. You know, you're trying to fix things, and you fix one piece, and the other part comes apart, and it's, you know, you live your life in frustration. Fear, frustration leads to fatigue. Playing God wears you out. Because you're not equipped to do it. It wears you out. I often compare it to someone who uh, is in a swimming pool with a bunch of balloons and you're holding them underwater, you know, and they keep popping to the surface. You're pushing them back down to pop into the surface. And that's how some of us are. We're, we got our secrets and we hide them and they keep coming to the surface and we don't know what to do with them. That's the result of playing God. There's something incredibly freeing. When we surrender control of our lives and say, God, (laughs) I can't do this. I can't do this. I need your help. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount in the uh, NIV and King James, blessed are the poor in spirit. Whenever I hear somebody say, blessed, I'm blessed. How you doing? I'm blessed. That tells me they probably go to church. It's kind of a church word, right? You know, uh, and it's even more of a church word if they say blessed. You know, there's that old hymn, blessed be the name. And, you know, your hair is not messed, you know. Uh, but somehow we, we don't need to get dressed, but we're blessed. That makes not a lot of sense. Now, in the English language, blessed might seem like a strange word. But remember, Jesus didn't speak English. And the word for that we translate blessed is a very common word, makarios. And it was uh, probably blessed is as good an English translation as any. It probably uh, comes close to the original meaning. It carries this sense. Congratulations. Way to go. Way to go, poor in spirit. In the Greek language, makarios communicates the idea of contentment. Fulfillment, satisfaction, completion. So essentially Jesus is saying these are all the ingredients that you need that will result in contentment and happiness and joy in your life. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. And it begins by admitting that I am not God. 
even though I sometimes try to act like it. It requires a humble spirit. It says in 1 Peter, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You might still be saying, I think I can solve my problems. No, you can't. If you could, you would have already done it, you know. If you could fix it, you would fix it. But it's not possible for you to fix it. That's why I must seek God's healing and God's help in my life. We call that first step prayer. Just telling God the truth as if he doesn't already know it. He's that grandma looking out the window. He knows our condition. It's not a secret to him. So we say basically, Lord, I'm so tired of trying to run my world. I'm tired of pretending. I'm tired of keeping up a certain image. Forgive me for trying to play your role in my life. I realize I'm not you. I've made a mess of my life, and and I need your healing in my life. We all need that prayer. That's the first step. But there's a second step. We, We need a spiritual friend. In your life, it's not just enough to to confess your sins. You need to realize that you need encouragement and accountability. You need uh, God with flesh on. That's the people he calls to help us. That's why small groups are so important. We call them life groups in the church I last served. And they're so powerful and so wonderful. It's a group of people that meet together regularly and pray for each other and study the word together. And uh, we've been in a group now for for 10 years, and some of the closest friends we have in the world are in that group. And last week, one of those friends with no symptoms suddenly discovered that she has small cell lung cancer. That's a tough one. And it's been amazing to me to see that group rally around her in prayer and concern and love. And I often think, where would we be? without each other. I feel so sorry for people that aren't connected to the body of Christ, aren't connected to the church. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. God designed the church for a reason. We need each other to live out this life together that he's called us to live. There's a great story in Luke chapter 7. Jesus has been invited to the home of a local Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees of that day were the Bible teachers. They were the scholars. They were the church people. You know, they were chairman of the board. They were the the really important people. And it was not uncommon for Pharisees to invite other religious leaders. Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, to come to their home. And after dinner, they would have these big religious discussions. And things were going pretty well. Until she showed up. She was a sinful woman. That's how Luke describes her. Now we have that story in all the Gospels with little different details. John says it's the sister of of, uh, Lazarus. It's, It's Mary. But he does not call her a sinful woman. But Luke just says, he doesn't identify her. He just says she's a sinful woman. And she goes to where Jesus is seated at the table. And the tables, you got to realize, were really low and they laid on their side to eat. It's not like you and I sitting at a a big dinner table. And so your feet are kind of there, you know. (laughs) 
And, and she comes, and with her tears, she begins to weep, and it washes his feet. And she uses her long hair to dry his feet. And then she puts expensive perfume on his feet. And that may sound a little erotic to you, but Luke reminds us that's what the Pharisee should have done. He should have had a servant to wash his guests' feet when they came in and to take care of them and to dry them because it was dirty with the roads they walked and muddy and all kinds of stuff on the roads. And so the feet weren't always the best thing, you know. And so it was his job. So what's this story really all about? Is it about feet? No. It's about what we've been discussing this morning. Denial of our need. Denial of our need. Simon's not an evil man. He's probably, uh, by human standards, a really good man. But Simon's trying to run his own life, and Simon is not God. I like how David Jeremiah describes it. He says, Simon knew all about God, but he did not know him. His pride kept him from admitting his need. For several years, I worked in a, uh, or several months, I worked in an alcohol treatment center. It was when I was doing a master's program. And uh, I was working with recovering addicts. And they would get in a circle, and, and it was really interesting to listen to their conversations with each other as, you know, they would say, you know, I'm an alcoholic or I'm a drug addict. And, this is, and there was one guy in a circle, he was missing a leg, and he said, I'm not an alcoholic. I drink, but I'm not an alcoholic. He lost his marriage, lost his job, and lost his leg in a drunken accident. But I'm not an alcoholic. You know, total denial of his need. Sometimes that's where we are. But this woman in Luke 7, she knows she's a sinner. She knows she's broken. There's no denying it. And she no longer wants to live her life that way. I have an incredible image of this scene because when early 90s, I was on a board called Heart to Honduras. And uh, the founder of that group, Charlie Smith, his wife discovered she had sinus uh, cancer. And she had gone to Honduras for one last time to be with the people. And as Karen was sitting, uh, one of the leaders, Nielsa, comes over and begins to wash her feet. And the tears are flowing. And it reminded me again of, of this story, our story, how we need to be forgiven and healed and cleansed. So this particular sinful woman, she's like us. She probably was worried about the consequences. What if Jesus rejects her? What if God doesn't say it's okay? What if he doesn't forgive me? What if they kick me out of the church? They know her story. But all those thoughts did not overcome the fact that this was her moment. This was her time to change her life forever. This is your moment to quit worrying about everyone else. What they think, what they might think about you if they really knew you. 
In Luke's story, there are two religious leaders, Simon and Jesus, and one sinful woman. One religious leader's approach to sinfulness is to stay as far away as possible. Get that woman out of here. And the other religious leader says, I've come to give her hope and grace and forgiveness. Today you may be thinking, my problem's not that bad. Well, how bad does it have to get before you address it? How much do you have to lose? How many have to suffer because of your actions? The last two churches I've served uh, at Eastland for 18 years, at, at White Chapel and Daytona for 10 years, the last service in both of those times as I was entering, entering my ministry there, we had cardboard testimonies, and you're probably familiar with those. And uh, about 50 people in both places came across the stage. And on the front side, they, they share the mess. I had an affair. I lost my job. I was a Muslim. Uh, I was depressed. I was broken. And the flip side would be God's healing. God saved my marriage. I'm now a Christ follower. And it's, it's such a moving thing to see what God has done. But one of the most moving to me was a young girl about 18 years old. And her front side said, came to Christ at a very early age. And I thought, well, what's the backside going to say? I thank God for his grace that helped me avoid so much pain and so much suffering. One person has said, the acid of my pain finally ate through the wall of my denial. If you're at the end of your rope this morning, congratulations. God has a lifeline for you. He loves us that much. I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads with me for just a moment. I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us in the only way he can to our hearts. What's unhealthy and out of balance in your life today? What needs changing? I invite you to join us in this eight-week journey of getting healthy and to knowing God's contentment. Would you take the first step today? That's always the hardest. It means being honest, facing an issue that you've been ignoring for a long time. I want to pray for you, and then when I finish this prayer, I want you to pray with me. Father, because none of us are you, there are areas of our life that need forgiveness and healing. There are things messed up in our lives. Some of these things are painful, and we can hardly stand to think about them. I know there are people here today struggling with guilt and shame, people who are in depression, struggling with a sense of worthlessness in their lives. I know there are others whose marriages have grown cold, and they're dying. There are people struggling with a habit, a secret sin, a hurt, a fear of losing control. Lord, help them this morning to take that first step. Now I invite you to pray with me 
in your mind. Think about these words. Dear God, I want to take the first step in fixing the mess I've made in my life. I realize I'm not God, but I've often acted like I was. I've tried to control things. I'm sorry. I've done things you commanded me not to do. Please forgive me. I'm not going to run from you anymore. I'm going to run to you. I know I'm helpless to fix this. I'm asking you to take the unmanageable pieces of my life. I'm asking for help, and even more, I'm asking for courage to accept help from others. I don't want to just be forgiven. I want to be healed. I want the rest of my life to be the best of my life. I know Satan will throw all kinds of roadblocks these next eight weeks, but help me to stick it out. Change me, Lord, starting today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me as we sing together. Justice has been satisfied. He 
Oftentimes those are painful. It stings. That, that fresh light is blinding at times. But God, you're right there with us. And you have a plan and you have wisdom and you have a vision for how to help us find those healing moments and the restoration and the reconciliation that we need to be fully yours. We want to be fully yours, Lord and be used by you. So help clean us up, Lord. Get us on track. We seek you for that. And we thank you, Lord, for your provision. And it's in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday, church. See you this afternoon.